Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time of day it is. Welcome once again to Gaming Street Irregulars. I'm James Iris, joined as always by Dr. Chrissy Robotnik. Hi, everyone. I'm AKA a lot nicer Christy than the Hardy. other guy. <laughs> I'm a lot nicer than the other guy. I don't blow stuff up. And today in the digital recording booth, we have a special guest. Please welcome straight from Artificial Orange Studios' myriad Let's Play videos, Crunchy. Meowdy. Welcome aboard, Crunchy. I'm what, 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 what. <laughs> No one told me I need to have safety equipment. Oh, you apparently have not listened to any of the podcasts then. <laughs> Although normally the only thing you have to watch out for are the crickets. You have been dying to use that sound clip forever, I swear. And you found a reason to. Oh, I usually plug it in here and there, but... You've been dying to do it during a live broadcast. I I've done it to Pemmy. <laughs> That's ice cold. That, yeah, well, not, that... not to anything he said... Usually in response to my own jokes. Mm -hmm. I I save this for his jokes. Fair enough. So, all right, what's the plan? What are we talking about today? Well, today, unless we have a "What the heck is this game?" entry to do, which I didn't have prepared. I don't have one either. Okay, today we are talking about the game that. To not necessarily put Sega on the map. You know, that's usually what I want to say when we talk about these big firsts in a gaming franchise. But this was the one that made them competitive with Nintendo in America. Sonic the Hedgehog and its sequel, Sonic 2. Uh, this definitely was gave Mario a run for his money. Which is why later on, when they, when they had Mario and Sonic at the Olympics, it was like... Okay, now we're definitely making them competitive in <laughs> the game. Now you get to choose which one you play. So what's a little bit of the history behind Sonic? Because I was trying to research, trying to figure out who actually designed Sonic. And just like the rest of the Sonic series, after you get rid of the get past the classic games, it gets a little convoluted. James, you had a, yeah, you had a better understanding of it than I did. So I'm going to let you take the role on this one. Yeah, I apologize for if I butcher this name, but Sega president Hayao Nakayama wanted the character that would be as recognizable and iconic as Mickey Mouse so that they could compete with Mario and the million selling games that they kept pumping out for the NES. Sega had previously used Alex Kidd as a mascot in the States. And, you no, know, for a brief time, you could actually say Opa Opa from Fantasy Star would have fit the bill, too, because he popped up in a couple animes that tied into Sega games. So after looking at ideas ranging from kangaroos and squirrels and rabbits and a rotund, mustached man who would eventually become Dr. Robotnik or Dr. Eggman, depending on uh, your uh, personal preference or continuity or time period... And so on. Yep. They they eventually settled on a hedgehog designed by artist Naoto Oshima by combining the the look of Felix the Cat's face with Mickey Mouse's body. I think that's the most accurate description I think I've heard so far of a Sonic design. At least back then. Since then Sonic has been put on the Ultra Slim Fast program. Really? I thought he was doing P90X. Uh, yeah, I, I thought it was CrossFit. However he did it so quickly, it happened. And he got considerably thinner around the mid-2000s. Considering that, you know, he was created back in, you know, 1990, 1990, 1991-ish. I wouldn't consider it a fast weight loss if he dropped the weight by the mid-2000s. That's at least a good 10-plus years. Yeah, it did happen all at once. Still, we're splitting hey, hey, hey. hairs. Or in this case, hedgehog hey. quills. Hey. See, that's one I would use this for. I'm usually the one who makes the bad puns. Are you taking my job? <laughs> you actually had the job in the first place? Was there even a job? I really don't get paid for this, so... Are we doing a round of only questions? 
Apparently, we must be doing a round of only questions, don't you think? <laughs> don't look at me. <laughs> Crunchy's like, I don't know what I got myself into. By the way, that is a reference back to our improv game podcast. So if y'all want to watch us really have fun at improv games, please go back and watch that. Not right now. Now, this can't be any crazier for Crunchy than some of the cartoons Pemmy has subjected him to. The less said about some of those, the better. I was about to say, I was like, I don't think we want to bring up that painful memory for Crunchy. Also, Pemmy's technically not here to defend himself either, so. (laughs) Ouch. Very true. All right. So Sonic was created, and he was supposed to compete with a certain plumber out in, you know, Oregon, or living in a mushroom planet. And... I remember, I actually remember the first time I saw Sonic was at my best friend's house because she had a Genesis and I had the Nintendo. So we'd go between each other's house and I was, it was an interesting game. I just had to get used to a controller that was not like the one that I had. You know, three buttons rather than, you know, the four. What was your first experience with Sonic Crunchy? Well, I actually saw Sonic a fair bit before I actually played it because my fam my my household was a very anti video game household, so it was just one of those things where he just he was everywhere because I, I remember at the time that Sonic was actually seemed bigger than Mario and I think I found out years later that he actually was bigger than Mario for a while just like all sort in magazines had his own co- when that was around the time that the like the Archie comics started not long around there and I actually made appearances in other magazines. And I was just, everywhere I went, I could very easily read stuff about him. So I was just eating that stuff up with a spoon. And, um, but the funny thing I do remember was that at the stores where they had those kiosks where you could play games, they always had Nintendo stuff, but the Sega stuff was only ever on demo. You could never play it. So it wasn't until I visited a friend who had it that I got a chance to play it. And that was by that point years after I'd already been playing Nintendo at friends', friends houses. So it was definitely felt a lot more special i guess for lack of a better term just because <laughs> i didn't really get a chance to play it as much because everyone i knew had nintendo except for one person my first exposure to sonic myself would have been through seeing demo kiosks and print ads and comic books but first real impression i got of the character's overall personality was via the ad i'm about to insert right here into the break the dissenting opinion from the president of Humans Against Genesis, a.k.a. HAG. Danita Stokes, president of HAG. It's bad enough that Sega Genesis has the most 16-bit games, but this new Sonic the Hedgehog, oh, he really dusts my doilies. They say he's incredibly fast. Well, what's the hurry, mister? Hmm? And about his attitude. Smarty pants! Why can't it be more like that nice boy Mario? Oh! Little bunny! New Sonic the Hedgehog, only on the 16-bit Sega Genesis system. Now, this is good and all. 90s attitude, a lot of speed, but what actually put Sonic over the top was the decision by Sega's American side to turn Sonic into the pack-in game for the Genesis. Yep. And it was through that decision that even though Sega of Japan had to be convinced, it paid off. Because that led to the Genesis selling 1.5 million copies. Yeah, that actually made them a competitor. And that's why whenever we go to a used game store or a convention where they have used Sega Sega tapes, we always see those Sonic cartridges labeled, not for resale. I have one of those. (laughs) And this is another reason why I'm not so hard on emulation anymore, because... Technically, we're already violating the, the, the intended purpose by buying these not-for-resale cartridges. <laughs> I, I feel like that was probably more for like the stores selling them in the first place. Like, don't break these apart and sell them separately. Mm, true. Yeah, I think that's mostly what it is for. I, I'm, and, and honestly, by this point in time, whoever's selling the cartridge, it is not the original developer anymore. It's just someone who has the cartridge. So that's why... Most of the time with me and emulation and retro gaming, I'm like, my money's not going to the original developer anymore. They already got their money. <laughs> so if I don't feel like paying $250 for a Sonic cartridge, I am so down on doing that on my emulator. Yeah, but I'll still drop 8 bucks on the current port of Sonic for whatever modern system's out there. 
Oh yeah, I have I have almost all the games on my DS. I don't have them for my Nintendo, my Switch, but I have them for my DS. So let's talk a little bit about the first game because today we're covering one and two, and Crunchy may be schooling the two Nintendo geeks on this wonderful Sega game because I never make it past the Green Hill level. I have not made it to the evil, evil water level that everyone tells me is absolutely evil. Because no matter how many rings I get, I always at least lose all my rings within the first five seconds of a stage. And then as I'm trying to get my rings back, I die. Yeah, Labyrinth is very much a, um, a pace killer. And it's even funnier if you look at the fact that in like this, if you ever go into debug mode, it's actually earlier on. Because uh, I believe in the de- earlier in the development cycle, Labyrinth was actually... I think the third stage or it was much earlier than it actually ended up being in the final game. And that really would have, uh, <laughs> that really would have, mm. mm. but oh yeah, Sonic one was like James. So it was very much um, the, the, the debut of Sega's new mascot. They really wanted to, and he needed to be a, a lot of things for a lot of people. And by golly, they actually delivered. I mean, Naoto Shima gave him a character design that was very appealing, and the extremely well-known Yuji Naka, who was actually a bit of a tech wizard, well, that's actually putting it lightly, tech wizard, managed to make it into, quite literally, a killer app. It was a tremendous showcase of what the Genesis could do. Its big strength was, of course, its um, Motorola processor that let it go very fast. It could outperform the, um, the Super Nintendo. The SNES had good graphical stuff great audio but the genesis could just run circles around it very appropriate if you think about it so you had this game that performed smoothly had momentum based platforming it was very different beast than mario but at the same time just very once you you really got the hang of it incredibly satisfying to pull off i think that was a really big part of its appeal aside from just you know the big colors the memorable tunes just it did really 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 well (laughs) Sega. Yeah, they put out as much as they could in terms of color and sound, especially sound, like you said, because the Genesis did not have necessarily the most robust of sound chips, especially compared to the TurboGrafx-16 and the, especially the Super NES. Yeah, that was that was the one thing it was lacking was was the sound chip. But they did a great job getting around that sound that hurdle with some of the music in Sonic. Yeah, if you didn't know what you were doing with that sound with that Genesis sound chip, it could sound like digital farts. Yeah, it unfortunately that that FM synth you had to really know what you were doing. Otherwise, it did kind of evolve to that distinctive twang that you always hear the and the the interesting thing is is um originally they actually had they had two composers for Sonic. First one was Yozo Kayami, um was actually a friend of uh, Sega director Fujio Mininashi and I'm sure I messed up that last name. Um but the team actually didn't like the music that he had composed for the Sonic game. They didn't they didn't think it was a good fit. So they commissioned yeah. Masato Nakamura, who was the bassist and the songwriter for the J-pop band Dreams Come True. And he was very surprised to be asked to make the soundtrack for this game. He did not expect it at all, but he he kind of bought into their mission to outperform Nintendo. And he was he said it was very hard because he was limited to only four sounds can be done concurrently. And he didn't know he didn't understand how to do music on a computer which also made that very made it almost impossible but he did um he did do a pretty good job with it and we have the iconic music that we now have for sonic and apparently he still owns the rights to that music yep all you have to do is take a look at uh, the sonic stages in lego dimensions released years and years later and they have to use sound-alikes for those because of LEGO Dimensions' uh, budget being stretched out by the sheer number of licenses they were trying to acquire. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely the the Japanese recording industry is a is a bit of a, is a heck of a thing. So like, 
dreams come true actually owning the music ends up being interesting that where sega whenever they want to use one of the most iconic tunes in all of sonic you know the green hill theme they have to dish out for it and it's kind of wild when you stop and think about it yeah, and and actually, when he was writing the soundtrack for Sonic, he was also creating the album, uh, the dream, the dream come true album, A Million Kisses. And people said that if you listen to it, you can hear some of the Sonic themes in there, like they kind of cross over a little bit, because he was composing both mu- both sets of music at the same time. And actually, I think A Million Kisses was one of their more better sell- selling adam- al- albums. And what's also cool is, um, do you know what the c- computer was they used to di- digitalize the music? <laughs> was an Atari ST computer. <laughs> so There's some irony were, for you. So, so to create Sega music, they had to use an Atari computer. <laughs> Not the first time Sega and Atari's paths crossed. If I was Atari, I'd be like, hi, you used us to make your music? We want a cut of this. Uh, what I'm thinking of uh, for our second Atari is uh, Tengen. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they did cross paths on Tengen. Oh, Lord, Tengen. Since, you know, Tengen re- was releasing uh, unlicensed games and just about any company that had a minor axe to grind against Nintendo de- you know, decided, hey, we want to release our stuff with you. So that would have been Namco and Sega. Because, you know, Versions of Afterburner and Alien Syndrome and Fantasy Zone were released by them for the NES. But we're getting off topic. Tangent one. Think. Thank you. Welcome. Now, as far as programming the stages go, we saw a bit of, of this in the documentary High Score when we talked about that for the Monkey Business podcast, Chrissy. Yeah, we did. Um, and if anyone gets a chance, it is still up on Netflix, I think. It's actually a really That's good great. documentary. Yeah, Newt Yujinaka talked about drawing inspiration for the at least the Green Hill Zone stages by visiting roller coaster parks. I can so see that. Yeah. And I love how they, they had the and the Green Hill Zone has been redesigned was probably one of the more redesigned levels uh, in the game because they wanted to make Sonic stand out against the background and to portray him correctly. And so green Hill zone was to show everything you could do with this character and be able to play with this character too. Yeah. They um, had to similarly redesign Sonic a bit to work around that too. Sega is known for their bright blues in their, in their arcade cabinets. And of course in their logo, so mm-hmm. they eventually settled on that dark blue to match for Sonic to match that logo. And the red shoes were designed to uh, look like Santa Claus, incidentally. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> that's where they came up with the color scheme for the shoes. They also drew inspiration from Michael Jackson for those. Then why does he have two gloves? <laughs> yes. That's the Mickey Mouse that that's the Mickey Mouse part of it. So so Green Hill Zone, it's up there with World 1-1 in Super Mario Brothers as far as well-known, iconic stages in video games. And you get a real sense of what they're aiming to do with this series. Then you get to the Marble Zone. Mm. This is before the Labyrinth that, that you've heard about, Chrissy. Oh, I watched. I've watched my friend. I watched my friend's younger brother play the labyrinth, and I'm like, no. <laughs> it was like, I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> that the music they use when you're running out of air. Oh my god! I think that's where <laughs> I got some of my anxiety attacks from. Was like just watching him trying to get to the next bubble, like the next set of bubbles. Yeah, but this is. But I'm not talking about that one yet. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, that. Yeah, the marble zone. It feels. First, like a throwback to Altered Beast, when you look at the background, all those ruined columns, and then you go down and it's waiting for platforms, and more waiting for platforms, and more waiting for platforms. It's kind of the antithesis of what you experienced in Green Hill Zone. I feel like Sonic One was very much a game where they hadn't really decided what if they want what they wanted him to be yet. They just were just making a platform and they're like, okay, let's do some speed showcase, let's do some precision showcase, let's do some other gimmicks. And it was just kind of they're trying to do a bit of a sampler platter. 
So they still hadn't quite decided, hey, you know, let's make speed a bit more of a focus yet. And Marble Hill, Marble Hill, God, Marble is very much just kind of <laughs> the, the, the wooden paddle to the face that lets you know right, right from uh, right from the start that, hang on, this is not what I was expecting, especially not now with what we know of years of Sonic. Yeah, it's like, it's like you when you walk into it, you're just like, it's kind of like the, okay, you got to run, now you have to stop and think. And it's not just the stage elements that inform this slowing down aspect. This is the stage where we first encounter one of the peskier badniks in the series, the Caterkiller. Mm. Now, uh, for those of you who are not Sonic literate, the Caterkiller is this little crawling caterpillar slowly marching by, and when it scrunches up, it... It deploys these spikes where if you jump on it, it's lethal. So you have to time your jump very specifically, thus adding another element slowing you down. I think that the rudest thing about the Caterkillers in Marble Zone is that they're often in the narrow corridors. So you can try to jump on them, but it's exceedingly tight. Your best bet is usually just to try to roll through them. But Sonic 1 is also the only Sonic game to not have the spin dash. So if you're not ready for it, it's extra hard to set up the roll. That's a very true. Yeah, that's right. Because they didn't have the spin dash in Sonic 1 yet. Nope. They would patch it into future ports of the game, but if for straightforward Genesis emulated versions, uh-uh. Yeah. It, it was not in there. It was not a possibility. So before anyone at home goes, but why can't you just spin dash it? No, that was not an option. <laughs> that no. You didn't have a spin dash then. And you feel the lack of it too in Sonic 1, especially if you've played later ones. Like, gosh, I wish I could get up this hill faster. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> I do have to say, I do love Sonic's pause animations, where if you had to pause the game to step away and you came back, he would literally be sitting there tapping his foot, looking like at his watch, like, are you done yet? Can we go? Yeah, the idols are real fun. <laughs> yeah, thus beginning a tradition of idol animations with characters, and soon as audio allowed idol quotes and... You'd have things like Bubsy breaking the fourth wall by pounding on the screen, trying to get you to move on. That's a that's a game we're not doing a whole podcast about, by why, the way. Why would you even bring him up? I was about to say, what, what was the purpose, other than like to show the comparison, like, why do we bring up Bubsy? <laughs> well, he is one of the many 90s mascots with attitude characters that spawned in the wake of Sonic. Well, you could also talk about Crockers, too. Uh, Conquer, Conquer's came Con- a little later. He was still the, he still was that sassy '90s style character, though. Yeah, he he was more part of the Crash Bandicoot class. Y'all oh, sleeping like on my her. boy's socket. Whereas <laughs> you know the Sonic class included not just Bubsy but uh, Arrow the Acrobat, Rocket mm-hmm. Knight. Um, yeah, no, Rocket Knight wasn't there. sassy. Rocket Knight was just wholesome. Yeah, but but you know, on his, on the cover art, he still had kind of that cross look in his eyes. <laughs> that was very much an American edit. If you actually look at the Japanese art, he's smiling and happy. <laughs> there was also the wholly misguided awesome possum kicks Doctor Machino's <laughs> butt. Actually, you, you, we haven't talked about Ristar yet. Yay! Yay! Ristar so was kind of cute. Yeah, yeah. That that's going to be a good one for when we talk about. Uh, Sega games that did not spawn off huge franchises. But should have. In a just world, Ristar should have. Yeah, that was actually a really good game. The other one that was fun was Plonk. Plonk was sassy Oh, you mean Plonk? Plonk. I love Plonk. 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 Plonk also had that, that jam and Fallen soundtrack. Mm. Mm. Oh. We're going to aren't we? Yeah, and that's two. Dink. All right, so with Sonic, also, I think Sonic was actually the first time that they actually did the Sega as a startup sound. Maybe. I think it was the, I think it was the first time they added the voice to it, because I know that the Master System startup sound was, was just the tones. Yeah. I know Sega used that Sega tone in their advertising in the 80s in Japan. 
Yeah, but I think it was the first time it was actually used in a, in a game. game. A, yeah, more likely than not. Sarsan. But yeah, and so you know that would have been America's introduction to that. Yeah, and interest, and, and also um, at the time that they were making Sonic, Naka's relationship with Sega, I guess, was very tenuous. Um, yeah. Not not toward hostile, but definitely not the best. Um, and he and, and a lot of that was because, and this is the thing, is a lot of these developers did not get a lot of credit for their work. And, you know, and I always say, and it's kind of like how people are like now, they're like, oh, I'll give you exposure. And it's like, exposure doesn't pay my bills. Just give me the money. <laughs> like, But he wasn't getting enough credit for what he was doing. So he did leave the company after the game's release, only to be hired by Sega America. <laughs> I, I think my favorite part move. of that I think my favorite part of that story was that the negotiations that brought him back to Sega very famously involved a Porsche. Well, so it's just kind of like <laughs> so it's like come back, you need to sweeten the deal. German sports car. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> well, he also did something too where he kind of Sega at the time did not like giving their developers credit. They had a prohibition on developers' credit. So what he would do is he would hide a few names in black text on the black background. So at the time, yeah, you couldn't see the names of the developers in the background. But if you went into the computer code, which we all know a lot of emulators do, you would actually find um, the names of the people who worked on the game in the computer code itself, which that was kind of cool. No, it's a, it's a bit of a throwback to um, the, the famous Easter egg in the old uh, Adventure Atari game, where there was a hidden room where you had the developer names in it. Just they would they would just squeeze their little trademarks, little names in wherever they could. Just kind of like I made this thing, and even if no one sees it, I want to leave my mark. Yeah. yeah, that's actually what I was just about to say myself. Uh, this hey. is yet another instance of Atari and Sega winding up crossing in terms of history. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is is I think a lot of them realized that no, no one's going to find it now. I, I would love to go back and be like, when you did it, did you think like 10 or 20 years down the road, people would find these little Easter eggs and then blast them all over the internet for everyone else to be like, hey guys, this is an Easter egg in this game. Check this out. And, and finally getting kind of that recognition that they did not get at the time from their, from their um, jobs. I'd love to hear what they'd have to say about that. I, I will say that about but, um, Yuji Naka did actually make out better than most because when he came back, they Sega did kind of start giving him more credit. But that actually ended up one of the unfortunate side effects of that was that for many, many years, although recently it's kind of been split more evenly, a lot of people just incorrectly attributed Sonic's entire development to Yuji Naka and Oto Oshima kind of got left out of it. But now, thankfully, um, he's got he's gotten the the credit he was due for the actual character design. Yeah, that's one. That's one of the the hardest things about it is 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 when you have stuff like that happen. It's like one side gets it begins getting all the recognition. It's kind of like Edison and and Tesla, where Tesla yeah. got a lot of the credit, and then notice recently more and more people are recognizing that mm, Tesla was more of a genius than Edison was. Yeah, it's a similar thing with Mega Man, where everybody credits Keiji Inafune as the father, but Takoro Fujiwara was the key guy doing the development on that very first couple of games. <laughs> I, I nearly, I nearly got into a big, a big, I nearly got into a fight with someone at a barcade over Keiji Inafune once. It was kind of great. Oh my god. Oh. But that's way too much of a sidetrack. So I'm not. I'm just going to leave it there, just to kind of a, a nugget of. Out of Some, context. So, something to bring Crunchy back for to talk about later. There you go. Yes. We'll, we'll do it. We'll do a podcast about barcades. Yes, especially after we manage to get Pemmy to one while he's up for Flower City Comic Con. Woo! We're gonna we're gonna try to get him to Swillburgers. And they're play because they have we have a we have a barcade up here called Swillburgers where you could play. It has all the old arcade cabinets and food. Well, not all the old arcade cabinets. Majority of them. The, the extra ones, they get donated to Strong, and apparently when Strong's like, we have way too many of the same one, they'll sell them to uh, Swilberger. Found that out the other day. We would love to have you come up someday, too, Crunchy. 
Hey, I'm, should... I'm, I'm, I'm always a fan of traveling to visit cool people. You would adore the Strong Museum. I think like I every I person... Yeah, I, th- I swear, I think every guest we have on here, we just have to sit there and be like, okay, so we're going to have you guys all come up. I'll get, I'll get group passes to Strong and all of the tokens that I can swindle out of them. And we'll just let you guys have fun on the complete and total arcade floor and pinball floor. Pinball? Yeah, they have a pinball exhibit. Oh, yes. Well, there we go. We should bring you back to talk pinball. Yes, I would love that. Yeah, it's got a room that's just nothing but pinball machines. Heck yeah. And some of them are in Japanese because we get them from Japan, too. Nice. So also, one of the interesting things, going back on topic, because I just saw this on one of my research things. I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. You know how you guys talked about Altered Beast before? Uh-huh. Do you, you realize the game that Sega repl- that Sega um, replaced um, using Sonic as the as the tie as like the packaged in game was Altered um, was Beast. Alter Beast. So they took that out and they put Sonic in. And if you had bought a Sega Genesis before they did the Switch, you could actually request a free copy of Sonic the Hedgehog by mail. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, uh, that's actually kind of uh, the. That was the right move on on both fronts because Altered Beast, it was a game that in terms of gameplay mechanics was showing its age a little bit, especially in 1991. It was kind of in that Kung Fu Master mold of gameplay and it was very, very, very short and, you know, as a pack-in, it was just it wasn't comparing to Super Mario Brothers. It wasn't even comparing to Alex Kid on the Master System. Oh well, yeah, I think I think that was honestly just a, a, a showed a big, a major and very important shift for Sega because Altered Beast was an arcade port, and honestly, up to that point, the Genesis was bit largely marketed as just kind of the arcade experience at home. That's actually part of why it had the sound chip it did, because you ever actually. Like, look at some of the Sega arcade ports to Genesis. They sound really close to uh, the arcade versions. In fact, even for stuff like Turtles in Time, Turtles in Time on Genesis sounds closer to the arcade version than the SNES one does, even if you can debate the SNES one sounds better. But, so them shifting to sign to put Sonic instead of uh, Altered Beast is like, you know what? What if instead we start trying to make this, think about this more as its own thing rather than just kind of trying to bring the arcade home? And that really was the correct direction. I agree. Because the thing is, is that the the Sega, the Genesis had such an amazing graphics card to it. And even as a Nintendo fan, I have to give Sega, I have to give the Genesis its due. It was a good, it was an extremely good um, console with its design and how it made it. And it did a great job um, highlighting its positives and not covering over but adapting the thing it's like negatives or it's cons to make those into positives like it knew how to work it, it, if you had it knew how to work its sound chip to its greatest advantage for what it was which you know yeah there were games on that system that you would listen to and be like who my toddler can make better music than this kind of thing but it was, I mean, I got to give this, I got to give the Genesis a due. It was a good system. It did things that I didn't see on the, the Super Nintendo, like with Earthworm Jim and some of the things that Earthworm, that they did at Earthworm Jim that was better on the Genesis than it was on the, the Super Nintendo. So I got to give them, I have to give them a lot of due for that because they did a good job with that, that council. Now, the Saturn, on the other hand, needs to be buried in a landfill somewhere next to the E.T. game. Mm. Yeah, that was just... They made this... It's one of those readable decision things where it's kind of like, you know, let's try doing non-polling. Let's do quadrilaterals instead. Like, yeah, oh, 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 okay. The Saturn yeah. is a long story that's better suited to its own podcast. Fair enough. No, but honestly, the best thing you can say about the Genesis is the fact that it came out to compete with the original Nintendo, but it managed to hold its own against the SNES, even though the SNES was with superior hardware in many ways. Oh, yeah. The Sega Genesis is probably in many ways the Rocky of the console wars. You know, it was, hey. 
it was scrappy. It came out against a giant and it not only held its own, but it held its own for a good while against um, Nintendo. It gave Nintendo a run for their money. Yeah, and then Sony came along and suddenly it wasn't even a fair fight. Which is yeah. partially Nintendo's fault, ironically enough. But So do we have anything yeah. else we want to say about the first Sonic game? It set the stage for what would become one of the most recognizable characters in the video game period. I don't think anyone at the time knew it, and they were still finding their stride, but it was one hell of a really good jumping off point. Yeah. I, I, I have to say that too. And I mean like they and they did their quality testing really good for this too, where they would have people play Super Mario Brothers and then play Sonic and a lot of people would prefer Sonic. So that's when they kinda knew they, they had something on their hands. It wasn't like they just threw it out there and crossed their fingers. They actually went out and like tested it against the competitor to make sure they had a better game than the competitor. Then of course, you know, Super Mario Brothers three came out like I think what, two years later? So they were really working no. Off Super of- Mario Brothers three came out in nineteen eighty nine. Oh, did or, it? Or rough, roughly thereabouts. In, yeah. In Japan, and then a little bit later after that in the states. Probably nineteen ninety in the states then. Yeah. Whereas Sonic the Hedgehog came out in ninety one. Yeah, it and- came out in yeah, it came out in the United in um, North America February twelfth of ninety. Europe, it came out in ninety one. So, but I, but according to what they were testing it against, they were testing it against the original Super Mario Brothers, from what I understood. Which is an odd choice. The of all the Mario games that could have tested it against, they picked the most antiquated one. I like I said, I don't I, like the article I read said they tested against the original Mario Brothers. They did not test it against three. Huh. Well, it's not. To a point, you can also think about it kind of like not everyone's going to have the newest ones. They were trying to compare it against what they knew people knew. Yeah. Fair so enough. That makes sense because no one really, because, yeah, because three, not everyone would have had three yet. So. And it compares right. to everybody to three anyway, so, too. So it's not like. I mean, it holds up against three. Like, yeah. I, yeah, I, I put both of those on the same, on the same level. Level. So Sonic the Hedgehog would go on to sell more than 7.5 million copies across all platforms. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm reading the wrong reading the wrong data here. Sonic the Reset. Hedgehog would sell how many copies? Oh, 24 million copies worldwide across all platforms. Nice. A majority of those were on the Genesis. It was the best-selling game on the Sega system. Can you guess what the second best-selling game was? Sonic 2. Naturally! <laughs> so, Sonic 2 not only cemented Sonic as the mascot for Sega, but they also introduced his own special cute little sidekick, Tails. Yep. Miles per hour, or as in miles per hour. You get it. It took me an embarrassing number of years to realize that pun was there. All right, I'm gonna make you. I'm actually gonna make you feel a little better about that, Crunchy. I just realized it now. For me, it was like maybe five years ago, so I do feel a little bit better. (laughs) Yeah, I only picked up on it in the 2000s myself. Well, in my defense, the the Sega material always listed it with tails and like always always wrote it as Miles Tails Prower. They never ever just listed it without the tails in the middle. So my brain never just made the connection. Fair. Yeah, I, and I, I think that we could put that down as another Easter egg where people who actually like sat down and actually took out the tails and said the name was like oh. So, oh. mm. I will have to say this though. I have to, Tails is probably the best superhero sidekick you could have. He doesn't get in the way. You don't hit him on. You know, you kind of don't. You know, like you know how sometimes you you get like ask like not escort missions, but in games like you get like that that NCP that NPC player that's with you, and they get in the way or you hit them by accident. Tails was like the most useful little little thing you ever had. He flew planes, he flew spaceships, he did it all. And he kept up with Sonic. And he I, didn't die. And he didn't die. He didn't get in your way, and he didn't die. 
I like to provide I, a counterpoint to not getting in the way. If you were fighting a boss and Tails hits the boss, you and he's still in iframes, you will fall through the boss, which has got which has gotten me killed numerous times. <laughs> oh. Ooh. Yeah, like in chemical plant, chemical plant boss, you're bouncing on top of the boss. If Tails hits him before you do, you go into the blue. Okay. One pro, one con against Tails. <laughs> At this point. It's a big it's a big con, but it's one con. So, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 came lightning fast on the heels of Sonic 1, developed by Sega Technical Institute, which was the American firm that Yuji Naka was hired into after he left Sega of Japan. And the development of this game featured not just Tails, but myriad other improvements and features they wanted to include in the first game, notably split-screen play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, well, A for effort, but D minus for neatness. Hey, I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, it was fun, but it was also a very quick way to slow down the gameplay when you started having a lot going on. I mean, limitations. Yeah, 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 every system is going to have them. Oh, we didn't talk about this in, in Sonic 1, and but, but it, it's something that was kind of new too, was Sonic 1, if you think about it, actually was the first game to have kind of multiple endings. Close to it. The first game I can think of with multiple endings is Bubble Bobble. Well, that's true. They did have multiple endings. Because like, in Sonic, if you didn't collect all of the Chaos Emeralds, the game ended. And then you would get um, a little scene with Dr. Robotnik with the emeralds you didn't get. But if you collected all of the emeralds, you got an extra stage. Okay. Castlevania 2 also had multiple endings, now that I think about oh, it. Oh, did it? Yeah. Okay, yeah, it depended on how you ended the game, whether you ended it uh, just as regular Sonic or as Supersonic. Yeah. Which is another thing that was introduced in Sonic 2. I wonder yep. how much of the Supersonic was 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 inspired by Dragon Ball Z. All of it, probably. <laughs> like, how could it not be? Look at him! I know. I'm sitting there. It's like, and now we have Supersonic. I'm like, why does this look like a super? Like now that I've like looking back and watching some of the online gameplays of Sonic Two when they go Supersonic, and I'm like, why does he look Super Saiyan? Yeah, we haven't quite gotten that far in uh, the Pemmy and James cartoon podcast. We just covered the first two episodes of the original Dragon Ball. But yeah, it, it is very much Super Saiyan. But if you're good enough at the game, you can actually unlock Supersonic in the Emerald Hill Zone. Yep. Ooh. Yeah, I was watching uh, the completionist Gerard Kali, uh, his videos on, on the two games, and... He was having a blast rubbing it in the face of his co-host that, I got it! Supersonic, I got it! <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of signposts in, in Emerald Hills, so yeah, you can definitely pull it off. Man, there's a dream guest for this podcast once we get big enough. <laughs> I tried to get him for uh, Monkey Business before they made the switch to just talking about movies, but his uh, team got muddled, like every other podcast team did. By the pandemic. Yeah. Uh. So we'll we'll reach out to him next year. Just fresh start. Because I love his work. Fair enough. Always a good reason to have someone come on. Yeah, yeah it's just he's super busy. You, you, you complete games 100% for a video series and employ people to help you with the video production. That's a full-time job. Yeah, around the time you have employees, you know that it's serious business. But yeah, Sonic 2. This game established so many of the tropes we know for Sonic. It expanded on the whole roller coaster concept with the corkscrew loops you see in Emerald Hill. Those were a neat visual trick. Yeah, honestly, I would say Sonic 2 is the game that crystallized what we now consider to be the, the archetypical classic Sonic game. It for has a 2D all the elements. Iteration, at least. Yeah. I think probably the most important gameplay addition, as opposed to Tails or the multiplayer, would be the multiple paths in each stage. Oh, I mean, yeah. Sonic, that's one, right. Sonic 1 did have that, although to a slightly lesser degree. 
Yeah, there, there's a lot more sprawl in Sonic 2 than compared to Sonic 1. Sonic 1, he the, the designers didn't want you to get lost in the stage. I think by Sonic 2, they realized, man, let's let them get lost. <laughs> Sonic 3, they're just kind of like, screw it, make a map. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. At this point, it's like, boom. All right, you're on your own. Bye. <laughs> yeah, no, but... The larger maps, the greater sense of speed, the the iconic sidekick, the spin dash, just, it felt like a much more big adventure. (laughs) I will have to say, though, um, I did have to get, I I did have, I I did get a chuckle when I saw the death egg. Yes. Oh. Sonic 2, you stop and think about, also means that it kind of forms the first of a, um, multi-game overarching story involving the death egg because it actually continues to take go through carry through sonic 3 and sonic and knuckles so sonic 2 was a very ambitious game yeah i i just have to give them credit like looking at the design of the death egg and just sitting there going and how did you not get nailed by george lucas how did you not get a cease and desist letter because i mean it is so similar because you never trademarked that star Mm, got it Nice. One thing he didn't trademark. He trademarked everything else. Didn't trademark the Death Star. Well, that and the mustache. Distinguishing. <laughs> the mustache puts it in the realm of parody. 10% of it isn't changed enough. It can be a parody. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just more of just kind of like, I made a space station. Why'd you put a mustache on it? Why wouldn't I? Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my I God. I can hear Jim Carrey saying that. Oh, I can't. I gotta say that his his casting as Doctor Robotnik, Eggman, whatever you want to, whatever name you want to go by, was like genius. Who? I, I, I'm sorry, I missed it. Oh, Jim, Jim Carrey's Carey. ca- casting as, oh. as Doctor Robotnik or Eggman, whatever you want to call the character, that was just genius. And it's fun watching him because you can see he's just having a blast playing that character. Like he's he's not even trying to be serious. He's just having a good time. It's it's all it's always great when you can when you can really just tell that the actor's having fun with the role. Exactly, it just makes them more fun to watch. Yeah, and I and I have to say, with that Sonic the Hedgehog movie, like I wasn't gonna go see it, but then when when the the developer and the director and the producers listened to the fans with the feedback they gave on the design, the initial design of Sonic, which was a little creepy. And they actually altered it. They stopped the movie, pretty much redid the, the scenes with Sonic to redesign Sonic to look more like his box art um, and more like what the fans knew. I had to give them a lot of credit to do that because that could not have been cheap to do. And so kudos to them for listening to the fans of Sonic who were like, nope, this isn't right. The one other thing that Sonic 2 added that would be a recurring motif Mm-hmm. Are, the, are the casino levels beginning with yeah. Casino actually, Night in yeah. this game? That was actually one of my favorite levels to look at was Casino Night because it was just so bright. And the pinball sections of that inspired a, a pun half intended spin-off game, Sonic Spinball. <laughs> no, so- Sonic Two did such a great job with level design that a whole lot of those levels you could you can say unironically are iconic levels. Hmm. Agreed. You you are that is actually really correct. Like that is on the point because you could show anyone like a picture of one, any one of those levels, and everyone will know it's from Sonic. I may not know exactly which Sonic, but they'll be like, "That's a Sonic level." Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, they they definitely found their stride in the in the in the uh, the visual style they were shooting for, and it it shows. Oh boy, does it show. Yeah, it just it was just an amazing. And honestly to me, Sonic 2 really kind of holds up as one of those few one of those now getting to be more, but one of those few examples at the time of a game where the second game was better than the first game. Because yeah, you I could Yeah, cuz Sonic Man 2, in that class Mm-hmm. Like you could, you just got sucked into Sonic too. And the what was also kind of cool was the little trick with Sonic and Knuckles, where yeah. if, where if you attach Sonic Two to Sonic and Knuckles, you got to play Knuckles in Sonic Two. 
which is pretty neat. Although you also, that's also the first time I'm sure a lot of people realize that Knuckles doesn't jump as high as Sonic does because, oh, I'm not getting breath in Chemical Plant. This is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he was able to glide and climb walls, which was, um, which was allowing you to get to areas that you couldn't get to as Sonic and Tails. So. Oh, and I would also like to um, do as a quick aside that um, they managed to completely reverse basically like the top three anime redemption arcs here of um, after pulling Green Hill into marble, Sonic 2 did the le- did the legendary galaxy brain play of going Emerald Hill into chemical plants, which just when you first start that act and you go down the hill, just zooming at a trillion miles per hour, your young mind is blown. You're just like, I'm playing something incredibly cool right now. Yeah. And that music in chemical hill plant oh, oh my, my god. god yeah no just no just sonic 2 just came out of the gate just at full speed and did not stop no it did not it's and it really and it really proved why it deserved to give mario a run for his money and he and they gave mario a run for their money for a very long time indeed in fact whereas mario would have concurrent cartoon adaptations you know First, it would be the Super Mario Super Show, then Adventures of Super Mario Brothers 3, then Super Mario World. Sonic had two separate cartoons running at the same time. The the syndicated one and the ABC Saturday morning one. They couldn't be more different. <laughs> yeah. Which, which, yeah, one, and you could tell, like, one was really more for, like, the two cartoons... You could tell, like, they were meant for two totally different audiences. So in that case, Sega kind of covered its ground. You had the one with um, Jamel White doing the voice of Sonic. Actually, I think he did the voice of Sonic in both. He did, yeah. Yeah. But you had the one where it was kind of like the Looney Tunes style adventure of the episode, and that was kind of it. (laughs) And then you had the one that had, like, the long story arc of Sonic as a freedom fighter, working with these other um, animals trying to defeat Robotnik. So you had the one that was like, you could jump in at any point in time and watch it. And then you had the one that had like the long overarching story arc to it, which was reflected in the Archie comics. I'm still disappointed uh, that Sega never formally adopted Sally Rabbit into the main games. You mean Princess Sally? A bunny rabbit, I mean. I was about to say, please correct yourself, otherwise the fans will come down on you like a hurricane. I was, about to, I was, I was kind of saying, like, hold up, dude. I'm giving you a chance to fix that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. My bad. It, it's been decades since I've seen this cartoon. I, I still have the Archie comic book sitting in one of my yeah, boxes. I, I, I've, got, I've got a long box full of them right now. Right now. Actually, it might be over there. Yeah, there it is. But I yeah. suppose they don't want to compete with Cream the Rabbit. Hey, Cream is a treasure. Cream's yes. adorable, but I, I, I like Bunny Rabbit too. <laughs> bon- it's, Bonnie it's was southern cool. accent. Bonnie was just sassy as, as it was where you had Sally was kind I, I have to say this. This cartoon actually had its female characters as very strong leads because you had Sally who was the leader and who was very much uh, was was the thinker, the planner. She was the one who cooler heads prevailed. And then you had Bonnie who just didn't take nothing from nobody. <laughs> like she just was like, I'm excuse me. Oh, you wait one second. I'm going to go beat this person up and then we'll finish talking. Like she was just the, the go getter. And it was just so cool to see that dynamic. And then you had, you know, obviously Sonic's the hero who not always thought before he went into in a situation just because Robotnik was there. But they really gave the characters in that cartoon a lot more depth to them. Like, we learned about why Sonic was constantly fighting Robotnik outside of saving his friends. He lost family to Robotnik. Um, His uncle Charles. You know, we learned why Tails follows Sonic around. He was an orphan, you know, and wanted to be like Sonic because, you know, he didn't want to be scared anymore. And he was also Sally's nephew. <laughs> so that's why he was running around with the crew. My favorite character, though, in that show was Darcy the Dragon. Hey! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> who, just, who just couldn't, who no matter what she tried to do, she couldn't get it right, 
But she was so cute because she was trying to do it right. Like, she couldn't breathe fire when they needed her to. She couldn't really fly when they needed her to. But she still tried. Dulcie, what are you doing? My best! Yes. <laughs> yeah, she did. She was trying her best. She really to help did. Them out. And, and you couldn't help but love her. Because you were just like, oh my god, you poor thing. Like, I, I feel you. Because we've all gotten been there where we've walked into a situation and we did our best. It may not have been enough, but we did our best. Yeah, the tragedy there is, of course, that I think Sega was never too fond of the whole Saturday M Archie universe. They, they, they think they probably felt it was a bit too serious because I think they actually they actually did try to pitch a um, a Saturday Saturday M based game, and they even made a working prototype. And Sega was like, "Nah." Yeah, and of and course, a- then Sega would go on to make Sonic 06, and hmm, you want to talk about being too serious. Yeah, it kind of was like, I, it, it, part of me is like, at the time, yeah, I can see where they were coming from on that one. Because um, they did already, because Sonic, um, because Sega was already getting kind of the reputation for doing the more serious and more adult-like storylines with their games. And I'm sure they wanted to try to keep Sonic as kind of this fun, kid-friendly game. At the same token, when you start going into the later games and you start trying to follow that that timeline storyline and it gets so convoluted, I was like, yeah, you picked that over this. <laughs> that has more loopholes and has more time loops in it than the Star Trek series. <laughs> and you picked that over a simple freedom fighter where you could keep going for a very long time um, with those stories. So I understand why they did it at the time, but... So do we have anything else we want to say about Sonic 2? I want a Tails. Um, I will say one thing about Sonic 2 that might, that um, was kind of funny to me, at least in hindsight, is that even though the manual very clearly points it out, there was a whole lot of confusion, at least among people I knew, about whether or not Tails was a boy or a girl. Mm-hmm. But you, may, you may have heard about that online. Like, well, there was confusion about it, but you might think it wasn't true. No, it ab- absolutely was. No, I was it- very... I was very much a, a kid at the era, and that was a question we had. Yeah, I, I remember that too. Where everyone's like, "Is is Tails?" I'm like, "The first name is Miles." <laughs> it's like his t- Tails' first name is Miles. And oh, I was like, no, but also like, yeah, yeah. A lot of people are like, "Yeah, but is he a boy or a girl?" And then I remember when we, I actually read part of the manual out loud. And I, there were still people who were, like, confused by it. I'm like, this is not Birdo from Mario Brothers 2, where we couldn't figure out Birdo for a while. Even Birdo couldn't figure out Birdo. This is true. Like, it's in the manual. It's a boy. And not, not to mention just also the on the title screen, Tails had struck just the most, like, cutesy pose. Yeah, that's true, too. Where Tails didn't do himself any favors on that one. I, I don't, but part of me wonders if it was on purpose, in a way, because it kept people talking about it. I think it was probably more unintentional, or just maybe one of those cultural things where it's just kind of like in the original Japanese art, no, Tails is just very cutesy, but you know, Tails is, is a boy, and then just, I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak to that. It kind of worked. It kind of worked in their favor because it really kept people talking about the game even outside the actual game itself. Yeah. Like, what is Tails? And it didn't help in the cartoon series. Like, they made Tails' voice very feminine in a way. Like, when you would listen to it, you even, like, if you were watching the cartoon, you're like, wait, is that a boy or a girl doing the voice? You know? And I'm just, I remember, like, part of me, after a while, I'm like, are we purposely making this ambiguous just to keep this thing going? Like, is this what we're doing now? We're going to continue to hash this out a little bit, but we're going to take a break to do that. And when we return, we will have This Day in Gaming History. We'll talk a little bit more about Flower City Comic Con and much more. So stay tuned. Want to support the Irregulars? 
head over to www.patreon.com backslash FC3ROC. We're part of the media division of Flower City Comic Con, based in Rochester, New York. We're a nonprofit group. Everything we make off of Patreon and everything else we do goes right back into putting on our future conventions and other events, from reserving the facilities to bringing in guests. If you pledge any amount, even a slim dollar, you will receive improved access to my blog entries, where every Tuesday I go over current video game news and write retrospectives on old-school arcade games, all delivered conveniently to your inbox. There's plenty of other perks and rewards, and if you don't see what you're looking for, reach out to the crew. They'll be happy to work with you. Want to get a hold of us in particular? You can email Christy directly at k-r-i-s-s-i at fc3roc dot org and me at j-a-m-e-s at fc3roc dot org at the moment we're still working out most social media matters but we are indeed on facebook at gaming street irregulars chrissy and i are fairly frequently there sharing news and things we find cool and begging i mean asking for your questions and answers to be used in upcoming episodes Yeah, asking. That's the ticket. We love hearing from you all, whether you have praise, constructive criticism, or just want to share something cool and gaming-related yourselves. Also, wherever you find FC3 on social media, we're usually not too far behind. So if you reach out to them with something for us, they'll get it to us shortly. Legally speaking, all music, sound effects, voice clips, and so on are the properties of their respective owners. We make no claim to them and have no intention of profiting off of them. Please don't sue us. We have nothing you'd want. Okay. Sorry I had to cut that conversation short, but we are running up on time, unfortunately. Fair enough. I mean, I will say, be, be thankful you guys managed to r- wrangle it back. Otherwise, I was about to, uh, I was actually about to use Dreams Come True to wrangle it from uh, to Sonic 2006 <laughs> back to Sonic 2 because the closing theme there, they use Sweet Dream, which was the melody they used for the uh, ending sequence in Sonic 2. Ooh. Neat. That's cool. So, I... there's no easy this... way to transition from that to this, so I'm just going to do it today in gaming history. In 2002, on September 16th, was the United States and Canada release of the GameCube edition of Animal Crossing. And if you want to hear more about that, you should check out our Animal Crossing podcast. Yep, way back when, when we spoke with Northern Bell Rogue about that one. We need to get get them back on. Absolutely. Probably to talk Spyro. But you want to know the one cool thing we forgot to mention in that podcast about that original release? What's that? It came with a free memory card. What? Yep. They had to make sure you had enough space to cover all the different data for everything that was going into that save game. So they gave you a memory card. Well, that's one way to guarantee that you would not be losing your data. Gosh, it's almost as much fun as including an expansion pack with DK64. Mm. <laughs> oh DK we gotta do that one too yes we ha- we have done the original Donkey Kong we did we did it with Billy yes who is someone we're hoping to see at Flower City Comic Con September 25th and 26th at the Total Sports Experience in Gates tickets are still on sale at www.fc3roc.org or at your local comic shops in the Rochester area if you're in town, we'd love to see you. If not, or you just don't feel up to coming to a convention yet, we understand. We get it. And we also want to remind everyone that the masking policy will still be is in place as of right now. Uh, if you come into the comic book convention and you want to see either James or myself, I will be hiding out in the store helping sell merchandise and answering questions. And James, you're going to be over by the panel rooms, right? That's right. I will be pitching in there. And by the way, if you want to see my other co-host, Pembroke W. Corgi, just head on down to the Artist Alley. He'll be right there, too. And we're also going to have a couple of panels as well. So either we'll be answering questions about ourselves or Chrissy's going to hook up her her uh, retro her uh, recal box and you get to play some video games with us. Woo woo. Yeah. And, and who knows? Maybe we'll be big enough next year that we'll be able to have Crunchy at the convention, too. 
That'd I be mean, fun. I don't know. I, I don't know what I would do there. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, a, I'm not a draw of any sort. But hey, I can. If you need someone to yell into a microphone and generate hype, I can do that. I've seen me do it. You can join us at our panel. There we go. We could put we can put Crunchy with Chris, and between the two of them, they would get the whole place hyped up. Oh man! Yeah, then, then you can ask you, me to tell you about the time I accidentally hijacked a friend's panel, and she was actually happy about it afterward. <laughs> now that sounds like a fun story for another podcast. And, and it was a lot of fun, actually. And as we brainstorm oh. those podcasts ideas, we're going to take this moment to bid you adieu on behalf of Chrissy and our esteemed guest Crunchy, who you can hey. find on Twitter at Crunchy Lex. And is there any other place we can find you? Um, you can also find me on Twitch at the same, and you can also you can also find me on any number of videos over at Artificial Orange YouTube channel. That's right. That's how well uh, Chrissy and I first were introduced to you. <laughs> but for now, we bid you adieu, and as always, game on. Bye, everyone. Bye all.